Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we hear from India about what we can expect from Narendra Modi after his landslide election victory. And ahead of Ukraine's presidential election on Sunday, we ask if the tide is turning against the separatists. But we begin in Thailand, where the military has declared martial law, occupying TV and radio stations and blocking roads into the capital, Bangkok. The army insists that the surprise move is not a military coup, but is aimed at protecting law and order, following months of political unrest. Earlier this month, a court removed Prime Minister Yingluk Shinawatra from office for alleged abuse of power. She's gone, but her government has remained in office, despite opposition calls for its dissolution and sometimes violent clashes between pro- and anti-government protesters. To find out more about the latest developments, I'm joined by our Asia correspondent, Clifford Coonan. Clifford, the Thai army has staged 11 coups since 1932. Is this the latest? Well, it's still a bit difficult to say. The army insists that it isn't a coup. In the statement that they issued yesterday on, uh, on Thai television, which is now run by the military, uh, the army chief, Prayut Chanocha, said, the public do not need to panic but can live their lives as normal. This is not a coup. But it certainly looks like a coup, and it smells like a coup, and in that case, it probably is a coup. Um, he said there would be a center to control order, to be headed by the army chief, and that this center can enforce any law under the Martial Law Act to control the situation effectively. So you have martial law. You don't have a curfew yet, but to all intents and purposes, this is the army taking over control. So we're dealing really with a question of semantics here. You may not call it a coup, but... This is a coup. So what kind of restrictions are we talking about? They, the media, uh, the, the military has taken over, as you say, the TV and radio stations, and it's also ordered media censorship. That's right. Um, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of sort of punitive um, measures being introduced um, whereby the, the, so the country will keep ticking over and working and functioning as normally, but um, there would be a, a ban on, on, on reporting that might, be, uh, that might incite tensions or, or cause or cause problems. Um, people in Thailand are fairly used to these kind of measures at this stage, and um, we, had the, we had them three years ago as well. They don't actually make that much difference on the ground, other than generating an atmosphere of uncertainty, obviously, and um, in terms of um, you know, wh- what direction things will be going. But um, they are trying to keep things ticking over and running as normally uh, while introducing these, these, these martial law measures. What have the uh, the two political uh, sides in the conflict been saying? How have they been reacting? I think everyone in Thailand at the moment is is really adopting a wait and see attitude because this is just this has just been introduced. As I say, we've been here, here before on many occasions. Um, there's of the of the 18 coups uh, in the last 82 years, and there've been 23 military governments, and then nine of those and nine governments which have been dominated by the military. So um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of familiarity with the situation. Um, obviously, the the monarchist side would be, um, which is the the opposition side, would tend to have more sympathies with within the army um, because of their link to the king and and uh, the loyalty. The army is, is staunchly loyal to the king, so um, obviously a coup would would suit the the, the opposition side better. Uh, the red shirts have long said the red shirt oppositions. Uh, which is the, uh, led by um, Yingluk Shinawatra, who's the, the most recent pri- prime minister to be, depo- uh, to, to be in power in Thailand. Um, they, they have long been fearful of a coup because well, when the army gets into control, it tends to favor uh, the, the opposition 
in this case. And finally, Clifford, how have Thailand's neighbours and allies reacted to the events of the last few hours? Well, again, I think everyone is, is, is waiting to see exactly how this plays out. Um, most of the Americans, for example, are, are, are just trying to keep, keep things calm. Um, Thailand is, a, is an ally of America, and they very much want to... Um, the Americans are very much interested that we don't have another center of unrest within, within Asia, given that you have a row going on in East Asia with, between the Chinese and the Japanese, um, and, and there's other flashpoints emerging. So it's, they're very much hoping that things stay, stay calm and that uh, things will take a, a more orderly course. Uh, the big question, of course, is what that orderly course is going to be, because the army has been here before. Um, every time they come in, they always say, we don't want to be in power, but we have to take power. So the question is, what exactly are they going to do that's different this time? Um, some people have been talking about maybe some sort of reconciliation um, committee or commission being set up, some way of trying to trying to ensure that the country is effectively ruled while a compromise is found. But uh, this is a real threat now to Thailand's reputation, politically and economically. It's bad for investment. It's very bad for tourism. And, and fundamentally, it's bad for the integrity of the state. This is one of one of Asia's you know, most democratic countries, even if it's had its problems over the years, but it still has always tried to find a, a democratic resolution. So um, that's going to be a big issue, I think, going forward. Clifford Coonan, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Ukraine votes on Sunday in a presidential election that will be its first national democratic exercise since the upheaval that saw former President Viktor Yanukovych flee the country and an interim government installed in Kiev. The election comes amid continuing violence and instability in the east of the country following Russia's annexation of Crimea in March. Separatists in eastern Ukraine have called for a boycott of Sunday's vote, but advocates of a united Ukraine are also speaking up with a mass rally in the east of the country against the separatists organised by Ukraine's richest man, Renat Akhmetov. To find out more, I'm joined from Lviv by our correspondent, Dan McLaughlin. Dan, you're in the western part of the country. What's going on there? Well, there's considerable uh, enthusiasm here for the vote on Sunday. Um, This area, Lviv, and the rest of uh, western Ukraine was really the heartland of the revolution, and for years before the revolution, the heartland of opposition to Yanukovych. Um, So people are looking forward to the vote on on Sunday. They're very very concerned, obviously, by um, events in the east and uh, potential disruption that that will cause. Um, Russia's behavior and and actions towards Ukraine since the revolution and the annexation of Crimea. But people are really looking at this here in this region. They're looking at the election as a chance to, to some extent at least, put a line under Yanukovych's uh, rule and find a new legitimate leader, a new legitimate president who they hope will take the country forward, take it closer towards the European Union, and um, hopefully get to grips with, uh, with the problems out in the east at the moment. Meanwhile, there are some signs that uh, there's a bit of a backlash against the separatists in the east. Can you tell us a little more about this mass rally in Donetsk? There have been some very interesting developments in recent days. Um, Most of it revolves around the position of uh, Renat Akhmetov. He's the, uh, the richest oligarch in Ukraine. And for a long time, um, the government has been very frustrated by Akhmetov's moves or lack of moves in relation to the separatist movement in the East, because he's kind of been sitting on the fence. Uh, It hasn't really been clear who he's supporting, whether he is tolerating or in some ways backing the separatists, 
But in recent days, he called out workers at two of his very big factories out in the east to um, join patrols with the police in the town of Mariupol um, and basically to restore order in the streets. This was the first sign that he was getting sick of the the uh, descent into chaos around the region. And last night, very late last night, um, he made uh, uh, an emergency statement, as he called it, um, basically denouncing the separatists in very, very strong terms, but by far the strongest statement that he's made saying that not only he, but the whole region was sick of the chaos that was being caused, the bloodshed that the region was slipping into, saying that the um, regional economy was being destroyed, and um, targeting the leaders of this so-called Donetsk People's Republic and saying, asking who are these people? What have they ever done for this region? Does anyone actually know who they are? Um, because they're not prominent figures by any means until they suddenly appeared at the head of this movement. No one knew who they were. Ahmed has taken a very, very strong position in recent days. And today he asked his workers um, in uh, those major factories of his in Mariupol to down tools uh, in what he called a, a, a warning strike for a period of time. And in Donetsk, the main city in the region, uh, around the same time, uh, drivers were driving through the middle of the city, honking their horns in what was... Um, a relatively modest, I would say, show of uh, opposition to the separatists, but um, one of the strongest shows of, uh, of opposition we've seen, simply because so many people who oppose the movement are scared to um, public publicly pronounce their opinion when streets are full of gunmen. And given Mr. Akhmetov's reluctance to uh, take sides until now in a very open way, why do you think he has chosen to take a stand right now? Uh, it's really not clear. Um, a couple of the possible uh, events that have triggered it are uh, direct interfere have involved direct interference by these separatists and the gunmen uh, who are part of the movement in the the industrial infrastructure of the region. Um, a couple of things have happened recently. They've they've um, uh, disrupted railway traffic, and obviously this is vital to. Uh, getting goods and raw materials in and out of the region. And at the weekend, uh, there were reports that a, uh, uh, an administrative building that was linked to a major gas pipeline in the region had been taken. And it looked at that point that, that perhaps the separatists were trying to put pressure on local businessmen, foremost among them, uh, Renat Akhmetov, basically saying that, look, if, unless you come out on our side, we can do... Uh, we can cause serious disruption to your um, industrial interests out here in the east. So he seems to be reacting against that in part. And also, um, he made a statement earlier in the week basically laying out what he saw as, as the possible um, uh, scenarios, uh, the possible paths down which uh, Donetsk could, uh, could go. Um, and he basically said that Russia doesn't need Donetsk um, because it has big industrial, pro big uh, economic problems itself. Uh, Russia doesn't need to take on the, the social and economic problems of Donetsk. Um, Donetsk, as a, a, an independent state, would basically be uh, unrecognized and utterly isolated. Um, and the, the best possible solution, as he saw it for Donetsk, was to remain within Ukraine, but with many powers being devolved from Kiev to the regions. Now, if you look at it from Akhmetov's point of view, that would allow him to be uh, to, to retain his place as the key power broker, not only in Donetsk, but other eastern regions, enjoying not only all the um, 
the financial and economic power that he has that probably enhanced political power as well under a new system. The frontrunner in Sunday's presidential election is another businessman, a, a chocolate magnate called Petro Poroshenko. Uh, what's the nature of his appeal? Um, well, he's really come to prominence over the last six months in terms of politics. Um, he wasn't one of the, the, the most prominent oligarchs in terms of his his wealth uh, and in terms of the influence that he had over major political figures and movements until really the, the, the revolutionary movement, the Maidan movement, gained momentum. Um, he, at that time and leading up to, to um, the, the big protests ultimately led to the ousting of, of Yanukovych. If we remember, they all started when uh, Yanukovych decided at the last minute not to sign an EU association agreement for Ukraine. And Boroshenko uh, had become the key advocate, really, on the business side for that deal. So when it all collapsed and the protest began, um, he became really the key business figure, the most prominent business figure, to be uh, uh, who was representing the, the pro-EU, pro-Maidan, anti-Yanukovych movement. It brought him lots of trouble uh, from the Russian side. Russia uh, initially banned the import of products from his chocolate uh, empire um, and uh, has subsequently closed down some of his, um, uh, his uh, factories and warehouses in Russia. Um, but as the, the Maidan movement developed, ult ultimately uh, Yanukovych was ousted. Poroshenko was left in a very uh, prominent position. Um, and his strongest uh, card, really, for this weekend's election is the fact that he probably gains most of his support from central and western regions that most strongly back the revolution. But he's also acceptable to a lot of people in the east. Um, for example, uh, compared to Yulia Tymoshenko, who's the other most prominent pro-Maidan, pro-revolution figure, um, very, very few people in the east will vote for Tymoshenko. She's really, she's deeply, deeply like out there. But Poroshenko is seen, is seen as something of a conciliatory figure um, who will not only gain lots and lots of votes in, in the centre and the west, but will gain some votes in the east and the south. And he's also seen, even though he's, he's uh, um, uh, around the same age as, as Yulia Tymoshenko, uh, he is seen as a new face in politics because he's been kind of behind the scenes, operating behind the scenes previously, whereas Tymoshenko, with her very prominent career, um, has made a lot of enemies in her time. Finally, Dan, after Sunday's election, what are the likely next political steps in Ukraine? Well, the key thing uh, will really be what happens with, uh, with um, recognition of this election and recognition of the president who, uh, who wins the election from the Russian side. Um, over the last few weeks, we've seen some very strong statements from from President Putin himself, from Foreign Minister Lavrov, saying that unless this president uh, uh, that emerges from the elections, unless he can really be seen as a, uh, a figure with um, backing and a mandate from across the country, including the East, then uh, the elections will effectively be pointless and the president will be a lame duck. So Ukraine really needs to um, get a president who can deal with Russia and, of course, with the European Union and, uh, and, and the United States and other major powers. But someone who Russia will recognize and be willing to deal with and be willing to enter into some kind of negotiations with in terms of Crimea, in terms of the situation in the East. Um, if Russia doesn't recognize the president and doesn't recognize the legitimacy of the, uh, of the elections, then we're looking at more destabilization in the East and... Um, 
a, a huge job on the plate of the new president to try and uh, subdue the rebellion out in the east and, and hold the country together in the months ahead. Daniel McLaughlin in Lviv in western Ukraine, thank you. We move now to India, where after five weeks of voting in a general election, Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist BJP has swept a victory. Mr Modi's triumph was even more emphatic than expected, with the BJP winning 282 out of a total of 543 seats, enough to form a single-party majority government. In a tearful address to his parliamentary party, Mr Modi promised to lead a government dedicated to the poor and to young people. But the new Prime Minister remains a controversial figure, who's banned from entering the United States because of his role in anti-Muslim riots in 2002. I'm joined now from New Delhi by our correspondent, Rahul Bedi. Rahul, what explains the landslide victory of the BJP? Well, uh, there are many factors. One, of course, is Mr. Modi's very high-powered, uh, high-octane uh, election campaign, which included uh, social media, which included... Uh, 3D holograms, and it was really amazing uh, what the campaign was. But uh, predominantly, the uh, reason for Mr. Modi's victory is uh, the inefficiency of the outgoing Congress party. Uh, they'd uh, been unable to deliver on any economic promises, and they were rife with uh, corruption scandals, misgovernance, nepotism, and the outgoing Prime Minister, Manmohan Singh, uh, didn't really have any authority or power. That really rested with the president of the Congress party, Mrs. Sonia Gandhi, and her son, Rahul Gandhi. So both, all these factors really combined to propel Mr. Modi uh, to the prime ministership. Mr. Modi was cheered on throughout the campaign by business interests both inside and outside India, partly because he's promised to kick-start the economy. How does he propose to go about that? Well, he has uh, a number of, uh, that, that's in fact his priority because uh, he has made so many promises that he's really under pressure to deliver and deliver very quickly. Uh, he's of the impression that uh, there were a lot of decisions that could have been taken by the Congress party but were not uh, to do with uh, licensing, to do with uh, businesses, to do with land acquisition. Uh, and also under the Congress party, it was uh, very apparent that uh, the cost of doing business in India was far more expensive, so a lot of the big businesses had moved overseas. Uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, in anticipation of Mr. Modi's victory and soon after his victory was declared, uh, a lot of money is flowing into India from overseas. Uh, the value of the dollar that had gone up astronomically, almost 25%, it had depreciated against the U.S. dollar, has gone up uh, by at least about uh, 7 or 8% over the last two or three days. So all in all, uh, there's a lot of sentiment uh, which is positive, and there's a lot of optimism and hope for Mr. Modi. But he is under pressure to deliver and deliver swiftly. The BJP has a majority in the lower house of parliament, but things look quite different in the upper house. Could this create problems for Mr. Modi in implementing some of his promises? Uh, technically it can, but the BJP is very cleverly planning to get around this by having joint sessions of parliament, uh, which will ensure uh, a passage of bills more easily. Uh, the upper house has a membership of 245 members, uh, and uh, the BJP is not, for the moment at least, in, uh, in the majority there. But uh, a combined uh, parliament session will give the BJP and its allies uh, the numbers uh, necessary to pass the bill. So it's quite possible that it will resort to this stratagem uh, over the next uh, few months to pass particularly the financial bill, which is due in, uh, by the end of June. 
Uh, Mr Modi remains a controversial figure, particularly where his attitude to India's Muslim community is concerned. Has she, he shown any sign during the campaign of softening his rhetoric? Well, he has made uh, some gestures, but not enough. Uh, in fact, uh, according to some of the poll analysis, just about 7 or 8 percent uh, of Muslims in India voted for the BJP. Uh, Muslims uh, constitute about 15 percent of India's 1.25 billion people. So that's roughly about 13 or 14 uh, million Muslims. It's the second largest Muslim population in the world. Um, so that remains an area of concern. Also an area of concern is that of the uh, 282-odd BJP members, not a single one of them is a Muslim. And uh, in a 543-member parliament, there are only seven Muslims uh, all across the board. So this is causing some problems, but uh, there is also feeling that Mr. Modi will not be uh, as anti-Muslim as uh, he has been over the last uh, 10 or 12 years, particularly in Gujarat during the riots of 2002. Uh, he'll be more conciliatory. But then there is a fringe element within the BJP and the extended BJP, uh, which continues to uh, follow an anti-Muslim line. Um, so it really remains to be seen whether this uh, area of concern uh, is um, justified or not. Uh, there was some suggestion that Mr. Modi might ditch some of these uh, allies of his on the wilder fringes of Hindu nationalism once he takes office. Do you think that he will do that? Uh, well, that's a very difficult question to answer for the moment because uh, the, uh, there is an organization known as the RSS, which uh, is the Rashtriya Swam Sevank. Uh, uh, it's a basically a Hindu revivalist uh, group, which is the parent body of the BJP. Uh, and uh, they are uh, presently very powerful in uh, the formation of the cabinet. There's been a lot of meetings to and fro between senior BJP leaders and the RSS. Uh, the RSS is very shadowy, very shady, and a, a, a very uh, vicious kind of an organization whose platform it is to defend Hinduism against uh, outside influences of Islam and even Christianity. Uh, so I, it's uh, too early to say whether Mr. Modi can ditch the RSS. Uh, he has managed to sideline them in Gujarat, um, but it's another matter for him to try and sideline them at the national level. So that, again, is something that uh, needs to be watched. Rahul Bedi in New Delhi, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can read more about all our stories on irishtimes.com and you can contact us on worldview at irishtimes.com. From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.